Our Father, we read in uh, the book of Hebrews that uh, the Word of God is alive and active, and Lord, this passage proves that to us. Please uh, let it penetrate us deeply to our hearts, to our souls, that we might be convicted of the truth you desire to teach us tonight. Help us not to miss it by our sin or by inattentiveness, but to receive with grace and with humility the message you design us to live by. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Yoel's life has been completely flipped upside down. Thirteen days ago, in one completely unpredictable and terrifying moment, he, his mum, and his dad found themselves under rubble. His dad, Hakan, pastor of Iskenderun Bible Church, and his mum, Paula, didn't make it. Only 11-year-old Yoel survived. Uh, he is just a kid, but his hope is firmly in Christ. The question is, is Yoel's faith in Jesus misplaced? Does Jesus have the power to get Yoel through this? Alfie doesn't think his life can be turned around. He sat recently in a Christianity Explored course, hearing all about how Jesus forgives sin and changes lives, but was not so much full of doubt, though there was dubiety, but certainly full of guilt. Uh, his wife is on the course with him, but as he looks across at her, as she's soaking it all in, He's thinking about the woman at work that he's been sleeping with. He's already disgusted with himself because of what he deems, uh, even as an unbeliever, an uncontrollable addiction to pornography. He can't bear the thought of his kids hating him if they ever found out. But as he looks at his wife, his guilt is so heavily pressing on him He's actually finding it physically in the meeting hard to breathe. He thinks to himself, can Jesus really forgive sin? Is faith in Christ for these believers who are telling me I should believe this stuff misplaced? Does Jesus have the power to change me? The passage tonight offers every single one of us and them an absolute loud resounding yes. Faith in Christ is not misplaced. Not for UL, not for Alfie, not for you. Whether you're a Christian currently in a storm of difficulty or not a Christian, feeling like sin is so heavy and unforgivable that change in life just feels completely impossible. This passage tells you 
without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus Christ has the power to still storms. And Jesus Christ has the power to transform lives. Chapter 8 contains this mini-section that invites us to see Christ's power and authority and be left in no doubt that faith in him is not misplaced, not mistaken, not when he has power over nature and over evil, the two that we'll look at tonight, and then over disease and even death that we're going to look at next Sunday night. We'll consider the first two. Number one, Jesus has power over nature, verses 22 to 25. Verses 22 to 24a tell us, first of all, uh, about this storm. Uh, What do we learn about it? In particular, Luke highlights two things. One, verse 23, that it's a sudden storm, which is not uncommon in the slightest on this lake that is the Sea of Galilee. It's kind of slightly shorter than Loch Lomond, but uh, uh, probably about twice as wide at, at its widest part. But this lake, this Sea of Galilee, is the freaky fascination of meteorologists and geologists for its storms. Google it. There is a wealth of research done on this lake. Of course, it sits 682 feet below sea level. To the west of it, you've got the Galilean hills. To the north, the mountains of Lebanon, where Mount Hermon and so on, mountains of about 10,000 feet. To the east, The Golan Heights, really steep hills rising up beyond which is basically a 42-mile flat plain, a plateau. It basically serves as a motorway for wind. The Sea of Galilee, if you like, is a big bowl and the wind a big whisk. Okay, that's basically the way to, well, that's the way I understand it anyway. Which means that you can set out on a wee boat expecting a pleasant sail and 20, 30 minutes later find yourself in a storm, just like these guys did. Verse 23, as they sailed, he fell asleep. Jesus dozed off in the boat. Then a squall, literally in Greek, a hurricane of wind came down on the lake, sped up over the plateau perhaps, right down the ravines, picking up speed as it narrows down there, sloshing up the water and scaring everybody in there. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. So it's a sudden storm, but it's also a severe storm. The storm swamped the boat. I mean, Luke tells us in verse 23, they were taken on water and in great danger. And the strongest indication that this storm was severe is the reaction of the disciples. The storm is scaring them to death. When they wake Jesus up, they're like, we're going to drown. We're actually going to perish. Now, these are veteran fishermen. I've been flying a fair bit recently, unfortunately. I'm not a fan of flying. Um, But I've been through some pretty bad turbulence, especially back in October. I landed in America at the end of this kind of hurricane that went through Florida. And the plane was getting blown about in all kinds of ways. And I was, I was panicking a, a fair bit. I was praying an awful lot. But I tell you the thing that calmed me down the most. I kept my eye on the air stewardess. I thought, if she's sitting there looking calm, I can be calm. Okay? She's either got a really good poker face or everything was actually all right. You know, but if she's like hanging on for dear life and about to like grab a parachute and bail out, then I know I'm going to be in trouble. And I guess that might be what you think as you look at these veteran fishermen. 
these five of these guys at least have been on this water for years, probably since they were kids, part of the family business, and they are in an absolute panic, waking up Jesus. Wake up, we're going to drown. And that shows you just how severe it is. Now, it is really interesting when you think of it that they go and wake up Jesus. What is the point, you might ask? I mean, if you're in a boat, if we're in a boat together, let me involve you in this illustration. Let's say we're in a boat on the 1st of 4th, we're taking on water in a severe storm. If you were there with me and, the, and I cried out, I really wish we had a carpenter, you'd think I'd completely lost it. And yet, this is what they're doing. They're waking up Jesus, a man from Nazareth, up in those Galilean hills, who, who in all likelihood did not own a boat, although he could have made one. But they wake him up. Why would, we, why would they do that? Well, you would if you had seen him do the things that they had seen him do. Maybe you're wondering, how can he even be asleep in the storm? Perhaps because he's just exhausted from seeing people all day. That's exactly where he's come from. But also because he's omniscient. He's the God man. He knows all things and he knows that he's not going to die in a boat, but on a cross. He knows that's coming. So he lays his head on the soft pillow of God's sovereignty and sleeps, though not for long. The disciples wake him up, verse 24, Master, Master, we're going to drown. We're going to perish. And this is when we see Jesus, in the midst of this sudden and severe storm, to be the storm stiller. What does he do? Verse 24 tells us that Jesus gets up and rebukes the wind and the raging waters. And the storm subsided and all was calm. Mark's account of the same event says Jesus stood up and said, peace, be still. In other words, shh. And all three gospel accounts speak of a sudden stillness, not just in the wind dying down, but in the waves dying down. Evidence that it's a miracle. I mean, who can do that? Uh, who on earth has ever said anything to the weather and made it happen? Who on earth can make water stop waving? I mean, next time you're in the swimming pool or on a paddle boat, a paddle board, give it a go. I would do it quietly if I were you. But the wind isn't the only one on the receiving end of a rebuke here. Verse 25 shows us that Jesus rebukes his disciples. He says to them, where is your faith? Now that might sound a little bit harsh at first. They were soaked to the skin and they were scared to death. But there, interestingly, their unbelief has disturbed Jesus more than the storm did. They still have not fully grasped who he is. For if they knew who he was, it would have made all the difference in the storm. But they didn't, not fully. And their lack of understanding and the need for Jesus' rebuke really is clarified in their response at the end. Verse 25, the disciples question one another in fear and amazement. They ask one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Well, the answer's in the text of their very own Bibles. Psalm 107, written hundreds of years before this event that we read from a few minutes ago, says, they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm, and he guided them to their desired haven. What does that text tell us? 
What does the Lord do? He stills storms to a whisper. Okay, so what did Jesus do back in Luke chapter 8? He stilled the storm to a whisper. So let's do the maths. Who is Jesus then, if he can do that? Well, Jesus is very clearly the Lord God. And since he is therefore the Lord God, what should we do? What the disciples did. Fear him. Be amazed at him. He is powerful and authoritative beyond compare. So we should therefore put our faith in him fully. So let me ask you, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Maybe you're here tonight, you would not call yourself a Christian. A friend's brought you. You don't even know why you're here, really. But you've never, for you, you've never said the death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead are the two most important events in all of history and for me personally. If you've never said that, where is your faith? Why is it not in Jesus is the question I want to ask. I mean, who else has power and authority to utter words of command and make it happen in nature. I mean, no one has power like this. You don't have power like this. No doctor has power like this. The politicians who govern us don't have power like this. Who has the power to do anything like this? No one, but Jesus has the power to still storm. So why not put your faith and trust in him? Why put your faith in anyone or anything else? This passage says, put your faith in Jesus. But maybe you're here tonight. Uh, the majority of us are believers. We can ask the same question of ourselves. Where is our faith? It's an important question for all of us who call ourselves followers of Christ. We experience all kinds of storms in life, things that make us panic, like the disciples Again, it can be things like guilt and shame over past sin. It might be gut-wrenching anxiety over present turbulence, like broken relationships, bad prognoses, fear over money, deeply felt grief, the pain over unsaved loved ones, the kind of stuff that makes you just feel like you're perishing. Friends, where is your faith. Jesus asks this question of his disciples because for, for them, it should have made all the difference in the storm knowing that Jesus was with them. And it's absolutely the same lesson for us as well. Think about it. He's a storm stiller. He has power like this. Take a while when you go home tonight, before you go to bed, look back over this passage and ask the question, if you're going through a really hard time, if you feel like you're being bounced and buffeted by all kinds of waves, ask yourself, in this particular scene, when the storm was raging and the Lord was sleeping, which one looked more powerful? 
The answer is the Lord. But which one currently in your life looks more powerful to you? Storms, upset, anxiety, despair have a way of getting in the way of the sight we should have of Christ the Lord, who is sovereign and who does rule over us. Put your faith, brother, sister, in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the power of his might. That faith, according to God's word right here, is not in the slightest bit misplaced. This is the kind of faith that will get young Yoel through his trauma. This is the kind of faith. This is the God-man with the power to get you through yours. But that's only the first thing we see. There is more to come. Jesus not only demonstrates his power over nature and encourages us to put our faith in him and fear God. Secondly, Jesus has power over evil. That's what we see in verses 26 through to 39. Look with me at verse 26. See for yourself. They sailed to the region of the Gerizines, which is across the lake from Galilee. So we're not in Israel now. This is Gentile territory. When Jesus stepped ashore, who did he meet? Well, verses 27 to 29 describe a man destroyed by demons. He's basically an avatar for a battalion of demons. And this is, as far as I can see, the most severe presentation of demon possession that we have in the Bible. I would not argue this is normal in the slightest. But these are extremes. The storm's extreme to the point that the fishermen thought they were dying, and this possession is extreme, both of which serve to accentuate and highlight for us the incredible power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me show you where I get that from. Verse 27, of course, just describes how he looks. This man wears no clothes. Nakedness in the Bible is a sign of shame. This man has been stripped of his dignity by this evil. He lives in a cemetery. He's half dead already. He has been stripped of his life by this evil. And this is, in a sense, where evil will take you. This is where evil living ends up. Demons devote themselves to defacing the image of God and man and dragging as many as they can by various means into the very destruction that is their own destiny. And clearly, we should know that it doesn't look the same. Evil activity in a person's life or in a society, in a world like ours, doesn't look the same in every case. I mean, where else in your Bible do you find demons possessing a man to this degree, is my question from earlier. I mean, apart from certain cases during the days of Christ and his apostles, you don't. I think these are unusual appearings of evil incarnating itself in competition with the incarnate sons appearing. But that doesn't mean that they're not at work before his coming and while we wait for his second coming. Demonic evil can be dressed up in all kind of garb. It can be dressed up in brown military uniforms and swastikas or in red latex devil outfits and a million other guises in between. 
whatever form it takes, the aim of the evil underneath is very simply to deface and destroy God's handiwork. And it's so wicked. It's so sad. It's so deceptive. I mean, Sam Smith and Kim Petrus draw the applause of crowds by their unholy spectacle. It's celebrated as an expression of life and of freedom, but it leads only to death and destruction. That's what makes it so heartbreaking. That's why they need the gospel. That's how this demon-possessed man looks. Verses 28 to 29 describe what this demon-possessed man does. He resists. Verse 28, resists Jesus. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. Of course, it's not the man screaming out, but the demons. I mean, it's so dramatic. It is like something you would see in a horror movie. But don't be deceived by the solid theology. The demons have a better grasp of who Jesus is than the disciples do at this point. But the Son of God, though instantly recognized, is defied. It seems from verse 29 that Jesus has instantly commanded the demons to come out of the man. You see that? But by begging for alternatives is basically them delaying their obedience. They're defying him. They're resisting Jesus. And of course, what manifested in the demons had already manifested in the man. That's why you've got this little account of him, verse 29b, of resisting all constraints. He cannot be bound. This is how powerful he is. This is how completely beyond the help of any other human being that this poor soul actually is. He's like Bruce Banner when the other guy takes over, breaking chains with Hulk-like strength. It's absolutely terrifying and very scary all at the same time. If he can't be bound, he can't be saved. Nobody can do anything for this poor soul except let him live among the tombs and shut the road to it so that nobody gets hurt on the way past. Nobody can do anything about this poor soul except Jesus. Verse 30 to 33, we see a legion destroyed by Jesus. It's really interesting, verse 30. I think Jesus quizzes the demon man to demonstrate his power, right? That's basically what Jesus is trying to do. But Jesus asks the demon his name. Why? We've seen Jesus exercise demons already in the Gospel of Luke, and he doesn't do that. Come out of him. Okay? Boom. Out it comes. But it's like, it's like Jesus is doing this in order to disclose the multiple occupancy of the man and show how serious this demon possession is. And how utterly powerful you must be in order to exercise this legion. Jesus asks him, what is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. Okay, in territory occupied by the Roman army, if you heard the word legion, what number would come to mind? 6,000, right? Whether it is 6,000 or not, we don't know. We do know from Mark's account that there were 2,000 pigs, who we'll get to them in a minute, so in, any, in, any, in a sense, it is a battalion of demons at work in this man. And everything about you thinks, my days, that is a lot. No wonder he can't be bound. No wonder he's got the strength to break chains. 
But Christ's aim isn't just to disclose the multiple occupancy of the man, it's to demonstrate the power of the deliverance. As I've said, we've already seen Jesus can deliver a man from one demon, Luke chapter 4, verse 35. We've already read that he can deliver a woman from seven demons, Luke chapter 8, verse 2. But 6,000? Interestingly, though, the demons are in no doubt of Jesus' power. Verses 31 and 32, the demon man asks questions that show that Jesus has the power to deliver the man. He has the power to save. They ask Jesus, verse 31, not to send him into the abyss, which is basically the bottomless pit, a place of punishment, in a sense synonymous with hell. They know exactly what they're destined for, but they don't want to go there. Not yet, they're saying. So verse 32, they ask Jesus to send them into a herd of pigs. Now, why pigs? You know, it seems that demons just like to inhabit something. There's another passage that talks about them roaming to and from the earth until they find someone else to inhabit. But they know Jesus won't say, I suppose they ask for pigs primarily because they know that Jesus will not say yes to them saying, "Uh, please can we go and inhabit that guy? You know, another human being. He's not going to say yes to that. Now, the fact that they ask these questions is already proof of Christ's power and his intent. They know what's coming. And they know he has the power to do it. And verse 33, Jesus' power over evil is then plain in the way that he actually destroys the demons. Verse 33 tells us, Jesus gave them permission to go into the pigs. And they did. Well, there is an idea for a Hollywood blockbuster. Demon pigs. That's a horror movie waiting to happen. But um, more unnerving over demon pigs is the question, why would Jesus do this? Now, I'm not talking about the death of pigs, okay? Um, I know people can get quite caught up on this. I mean, this has derailed many a, a growth group Bible study, isn't it? Does Jesus have partic- someone particularly against pigs? Or Do animals have souls? Is my dog going to heaven? It's basically the way that... And then, is it just me that has those kind of Bible studies? <laughs> That's why, you know, and it's not that Jesus doesn't like pigs, Okay, I'm already derailing myself here. This is ridiculous. Back on track, Garvey. Come on. Okay. He's, he's not more unnerving over the, the demon pigs is the question, why did Jesus do this? And again, I'm not talking about the death of the pigs. I'm talking about Jesus saying yes to the requests of demons. That should shock you. Huh? <gasps> But there is answer to that, I think. And I think it's that the pigs provide a means of both, one, demonstrating his power, and two, destroying the demons. It made the deliverance of the man much more self-evident, plain to see. As Mark tells us, there were 2,000 pigs, 2,000 temporary avatars whose speedy descent into death magnifies Jesus' power. This wasn't the kind of, you know, power struggle with Jesus emerging from a battle all battered and bruised because it's been so hard fighting off like a ninja all these 2,000, 6,000, whatever demons there are. This was easy. It was not a sweaty and bloody close-fought battle. It was effortless go into the pigs. And they did, and the pigs descended to their destruction. 
Now, what did such a demonstration of power produce? Verses 34 to 39 tell us. Surprisingly, a mixed response. Verses 34 to 37 tells that the people of that area, when they came out to see what had happened, were so struck by everything that happened that they said, please go away. Please go away. They were afraid. The people heard what had happened to the pigs and saw the man, verse 35, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. What a transformation that is. And they were afraid, afraid of Jesus. And verse 36, that Jesus was the one who brought about this powerful deliverance of the man they could not restrain. You would think that they would want to get down and sit at his feet as well. If he can change this man's life, I think you would have thought, well, he can change mine. But it seems, and we know this from experience of sharing the gospel with people that we know and love, that there is a fear of Jesus that makes people want to drive him away instead of receive him. Are they afraid of his power? Do they fear his impact on their lives? Do they not want to let go of the lifestyle that this new holiness would demand if they followed Jesus Christ and believed in him? Maybe that's you if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. You may be unwilling like them. You may be saying, Jesus, please go away. I, I don't want to do this. Maybe in the past you've committed sins you know are evil in God's sight and confessing them before him is a scary thing for you. So you say, please go away, Jesus. Or maybe you just really, really enjoy sinning and you're not willing to give that up. So you say, please go away, Jesus. It's nice for that man. Now he's in his right mind, but it's not for me. I want to urge you to be careful of making that request of Jesus. Based on verse 37b. Because it says, so he got into the boat and left. He did what they asked. He didn't stick around to try and convince them. He had done enough to help them believe in who he is. But they said, please go away. Some of us say, you know, I can call on him when I'm old and lived life a bit. I say, you may never have an opportunity like this one ever again. Trust in him. Maybe you are ready to put your faith in Christ. Maybe you recognize the need for urgency in your decision. But maybe you wonder if it's really true. Can Jesus really deliver you from your past sins? Can he break the bonds of your addictions to alcohol, pornography, drugs, whatever it is? Can he deliver you from the things that make you cry out in the night and howl like this man through gnashed teeth? Some kind of despair. This passage says he can. And he gave an even clearer demonstration of that power and that ability, a clearer demonstration than even the one that we see here with the pigs and with the storm. The reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil. And the place where he disarmed the powers of evil was on that cross where he died where he took upon himself the punishment that was due for each and every one of us for the sins that we had committed, 
in breach of God's law and as a defiance of his holy character and a disobedience against his holy words. He made a public spectacle of those enemies in order to demonstrate his triumph, same way he did with the demons and the pigs. He proved it. And he triumphed over them, over our sins and over evil, by canceling our indebtedness to God to set us free. If we confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. So believe in him. He really does have the power to save and to transform lives. That's what happened to this man. In complete contrast to the people, verses 38 and 39, the man who had been sitting at Jesus' feet as Jesus goes to leave, says, please let me go with you. Verse 38, the man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. You know, a few weeks ago in our Luke series, we saw how forgiveness awakens and saved sinners a great love for Christ. Well, so does deliverance from evil like this. Out of love for Christ and gratitude for the new life that he has, this man says, I want to follow you. That's the right response. But verses 38 and 39 show us that Jesus denied him this request, but made him a missionary right there and then. Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So there was a purpose in denying the request. While Christ preached in Israel, Christ was being preached in the Gerizines who could not stop talking about how much Jesus had changed his life. And friends, that's what we should do. It's a straightforward and simple application. Go. Go and tell about how much God has done for you. Of how he's completely transformed your life. Marvel again at his power to save that by his death he destroyed the works of the devil and adopted you, pre-Christ, a child of the devil, into his family to be a child of God through faith and repentance, go and tell of the power of Christ to still storms and change lives. So is faith in Christ misplaced? Absolutely not. Does Jesus have the power to get us through the storms of life? Yes, he absolutely does. Does he have the power to change lives? Absolutely he does. So friends, all of us, let us put our faith in the powerful, powerful Son of God, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads. Please take a moment in the quietness just to pray your own prayers of response, prayers of faith, prayers of gratitude. Father, thank you for these incredible demonstrations of Christ's authority and his power over 
nature and over evil. We know no one like him and gladly put our faith and trust in him. Help us, Lord, in the difficulties that we as children of yours face in life, no matter what they are or how severe the storm may feel. Help us by faith to lay hold of this, that you are with us and you are mighty in your strength. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, faith